can't believe that that Senegal and um, Iran are in the World Cup final. I think Iran Iran have every right to be there after their incredible win over Germany. Well, I mean that would be yeah that's that's one for the ages, isn't it? Chinch is making more notes. It's always the, the soccer disturbing. story coming up later requires research. How long is the soccer story? It's not. It's just a very short one about how I saw off one of the stars of Euro '96, yeah. Karol Poborski. I see. So we half time. We've decided to do off, that one, yeah. have we? We haven't. I have. You've made an. It's an Arsene Wenger. Decision. Do you want the Arsene Wenger story or do you want the Karol Poborski story? Which is better? Which is the better story? Neither of them are particularly good. <laughs> <laughs> if, you do, if you do the terrible. first one quickly, you, we might get a, a double whammy. That's true. A double double chinch whammy. I told you the double chinch Oh, so just wait to so I keep, so I leave it and it'll have massive impact on you when I actually say, well, actually, it won't. Just do it now. When I was down in, uh, which, which talking to Tottenham, when which I was down talking to Tottenham and Arsenal were staying at the same hotel and Gary Lewin, who was the England physio, Arsenal physio, so I didn't know they were staying there. So I was down for talks with Tottenham and met Gary Lewin. Arsene Wenger came in and we started chatting away about stuff and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm here maybe signing for Tottenham, Arsene. he <laughs> <laughs> just, see ya, au revoir. <laughs> Oh, you clearly don't want a new left back then. Well, I, was, no, I was trying to give him the eyes, you know, the little <laughs> eyebrows. He had Nigel Winterburn. Exactly. Hinch in his pomp. Was, was I didn't have gin showers. <laughs> That's true. There's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of kind of a lot of threads running through these podcasts, aren't there? It's quite I, good. I, I I'm the sure it's of that very story. satisfying for everybody listening. I, so I, I missed the beginning. Steve is back from the toilet. Everybody, we uh, can continue. Was, did, did Chinch just add Arsenal to the list of clubs who supposedly <laughs> tried Shunned. to sign? Well, you know, no, Ven- you know how no. Wenger's got that list of players he almost signed. Yeah. So whenever anyone mentioned a player to Wenger who was doing well, you know, whether it was Ronaldo or the other Ronaldo or Ronaldinho, Raul Morales or whoever, it would always be. He'd always say, "Well, of course, you know, we came very close to signing him." and it, it got to the stage initially you sort of thought oh, that's interesting and it was always the papers would always do, do it as a line as kind of you know Arsenal just missed out on you know Rai or whatever and then after a while he started thinking you can't have nearly signed all of these players Arsene because there's now about 90 of them and if the list is so long and Andy Hinchcliffe isn't on it well, exactly. what does that say about I was going to say maybe Chinch has got a, a list of Chinch has got a list of clubs that maybe he almost signed for <laughs> who would have played left back for Germany of these players, Sammer, Babel, Helmer, who would have played left back for Germany against Czech Republic in that Euro the final? Euro '96. Who's the German left back? Have you got the squad? God, I hope it's Kuntz. What? <laughs> no, Kuntz was a striker. Oh. He scored in the final. Yeah. Uh, Semi final against story. England. Who would have played left back? Do you think? Christian Zieger. Famous left back Christian Zieger is on that list. I think he's the goalkeeper. No. Who is the goalkeeper? Uh, Andy uh, Thinney. What's he called? No, not Andy Mollet. Uh, Andy Kupka. Kupka's now. Right, anyways. Okay. So, Chinch, I'm glad that you're uh, taking us through all this uh, excellent uh, play-by-play operation of your preparation. You Chinch has gone from story. trying to convince us that he came close to joining Arsenal to making notes about. No, I wanted Germany. to join Arsenal. Sadly, they didn't want me. Anyway, so, coming up later, a soccer story. But for now, this is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food, and this is the final part of our summer special series, during which we've each been nominating a person who helped shape. Modern football. To date, spoiler alert, we've had Arsene Wenger, Walter Crickmar and Jimmy Hill. Do continue to share your thoughts on this series and anything else via Twitter at setpiecemenu and email setpiecemenu at gmail.com. As advertised, coming up later, both a soccer story and our final edition of I Can't Believe That Happened. 
I know which one I'm looking forward to most. I'm Hugh Ferris. Like my suggestion, Arsene Wenger, the professorial, studious one who's outstaying his welcome. With me are Stephen Wyeth, who, like his suggestion, Walter Crickmar, is way ahead of his time, while at the same time having social attitudes to fit the 1950s. <laughs> Andy Hinchcliffe, who, like his suggestion, Jimmy Hill, has a stupendously large chin. Hi there. And Rory Smith, who, well, I wonder how much he'll be like his suggestion. Yes, this final part of our series <laughs> on who shaped modern football will have a central figure proposed by Rory. Hello. My suggestion, like me, enjoys bundra bundra parties <laughs> and <laughs> refusing to pay taxes. The, um, I, I'm nominating Silvio Berlusconi and I want to make clear at the start that this is not because I have any great sympathy for or, or desire to spend time with Silvio Berlusconi. But I think we can't deny how central a figure he is to what football has become. And my reasons for this are threefold. I love, again, structured. Reason number one, let me take you back to 1987, the start of the season. English clubs, of course, are banned from Europe after the Heysel disaster. And in the first round of the old-style European Cup, who should be drawn together but Napoli, the Napoli of uh, Diego Maradona, certainly, Carreca, I think, and I'm pretty sure Bruno Giordano, the Magica front line, and Real Madrid of the Quinta del Buitre, the Emilio Butredueño team that was... Uh, particularly good to watch in the 1980s, but in the late 1980s, but is not one of the great, great, great Real Madrid teams. That's the first round of the European Cup. Those two teams are drawn together: the champions of Italy, the champions of Spain, Napoli and Maradona, the best player in the world, and Real Madrid, the biggest club in the world. And Silvio Berlusconi takes a break from whatever he's doing at that point <laughs> and thinks this is a bit of a waste because that is a game that belongs much later on in the competition. We don't. We don't want to, he's the owner of AC Milan at this point, we don't want, he thinks, to blow these, these showpiece, top-class games so early on. Berlusconi is the owner of AC Milan. He has no particular horse in the race. Napoli were, were Milan's great rivals for the title then. But even Berlusconi, who is as well as president of AC Milan, he is the president of a TV company. That's how he's made his name and his fortune. Looks at that and thinks that is a waste of what we would now call content. That having the champions of Italy and the champions of Spain playing each other in September is a complete waste of a, what should be a showpiece game that fans would want to watch late on in the competition. That year, PSV Eindhoven won the European Cup. That's something that seems almost impossible now. They, they drew nil-nil with Benfica in a fascinating final. Um, <laughs> uh, having beaten waited, waited all that time for the content and then, then you got that. Exactly. Was it decided on the toss of a coin? Uh, no, straw, straw, I think they played Kaplunk. <laughs> they won 6-5 on penalties, Stephen, at the Neckerstadion. In Stuttgart, <laughs> uh, the semi-finals were Real Madrid against uh, PSV, uh, which was two draws as well. Uh, PSV went through on away goals, and Stauer Bucharest against Benfica, uh, which kind of bears out Berlusconi's point. Napoli Real Madrid really would have felt like a better semi-final than either of those. So what Berlusconi does is he tasks uh, a small group of people, including a guy called Alex Finn, with drawing up the plans for what would now look an awful lot lot like a prototype of the Champions League, transforming the European Cup, which was a straight knockout, mm -hmm. into something much more bloated and much larger, but also potentially much more lucrative, mm -hmm. because Berlusconi is thinking not just as the owner of a club, but the owner of a TV company. And that brings me on to my second reason for why Berlusconi is so important, which is that Berlusconi was the first person, I think, to really understand, maybe not the first person to realise, Jimmy Hill, our very first uh, first nominee, yes. uh, would also have made the same the same leap. Berlusconi is the first person to realise that, that football isn't just a sport. It's also 
what we would now call time decayed media content, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I know I've I've been a fan of time decayed media content since I was six or seven. Yeah, and you know I used to watch all the time decayed media content. My mum my will tell you that all I talked about when I was a child was time decayed media content, time decayed media content, time decayed media content. Just bring yeah. me some TDMC for God's sake. The watch any more of that, and you'll go blind. Exactly. <laughs> the um. Which means, as you can probably guess, time to take media content in a world of Netflix and Amazon Prime or whatever, of, of TV on demand, time to take media content is the only stuff you have to watch there and then. You can't watch on catch-up with the same effect, which is why football is so valuable, why people buy into clubs, which is why TV rights sell for so much, because it is water-cooler television, as we'd have called it in the 1990s. Berlusconi realised that. He realised that, that, te- that, fo- that football was a media property and had to be treated as such. And that's because of his unique position, both owning a club and owning a TV network and using the club to drive through subscriptions to his TV network, which later on would be copied by an Australian magnate by the name of Rupert Murdoch, who had the same idea. I've heard of him. That you could use football Your boss, to oh, yeah. sell satellite services. The one thing, of course, that Berlusconi did not have the foresight to do was to hire Andy Hinchcliffe <laughs> to work on his television network, well, which I know, having spoken to people within the Murdoch family, mm. is what Rupert regards as his how, greatest success. How different yeah. might the uh, the current coverage of Seri be? Oh, can you be imagine? Chinch if on, it were for Chinch. Chinch on Fodger, come on. <laughs> Touchscreen on Fodger, <laughs> let me at him. <laughs> and then there's the third thing that's really important about Berlusconi, which was that we've established that he was a he, he saw football as, as entertainment and as content and started to shape it like that. There's, we should also mention, of course, that he went and got players like Ruud Hullet and Marco van Basten. He, he understood the, the foreign market. He brought hugely high-profile players to Italy and helped. He wasn't alone in it, but helped turn Serie A into the, the dominant league in the world in the ni- 1980s and 1990s, which gives the Premier League something to aim at, which sets the model for the idea that there should be one league that is the best league, which is a, a crucial kind of concept within modern football. But Berlusconi, in later life, having parlayed his football ownership into success of his media empire, then parlayed the success of his football team and his media empire into a career in politics, obviously, which was later brought brought down by his uh, nightlife <laughs> choices. Yes, although yes. he is now back in. Although he's now back in because it's Italy and <laughs> th- that's what happened. It's fine. The Incredibly low... Um, but uh, ob- but expectations ob- for their uh, politicians. Obviously, the idea that football and politics should be intertwined is one that we've become very, very familiar with because of, of Qatar and PSG in the World Cup, because of Manchester City and uh, Abu Dhabi and the, the attempt to sort of whitewash a reputation, the idea that football is a way of accruing soft power. That's that's something that's accepted now, if, if not admired or liked. But it's, it's also become accepted. an excellent uh, episode of Set Piece Menu. Episode number 67. There you go. It's, it's, it's so common that we've talked about it before. But Berlusconi was, was, again, maybe not the first, but he's possibly the most naked example, adjective chosen deliberately, <laughs> uh, of, of, of how football and politics do have this relationship. And I think for those three reasons, as laid out previously, that is why Berlusconi is kind of like an evil version of Jimmy Hill, mm. someone who saw what football could be and set about to morph the game into his vision. And one of the reasons why we started with Jimmy Hill and we're ending with Silvio Berlusconi. Incredibly well-structured, mm. well-planned, an idea that has just come to me. Yes. <laughs> exactly. No, it does work. The, and as when A month ago, when Chinch was talking about 
about Jimmy Hill, I, I, I did think of quite a lot of parallels. Yep. And it, the same, the same with with Steve and Walter Crittmeyer. That that what I think unites those three and Vendor to an extent, although in a slightly different field, is the fact that they saw where the game was going. That's the people who've influenced football the most have are the people who have, I guess, envisioned what what it could become and been in a position to influence it. How much of this, though, with Berlusconi is about him? You've talked about a lot of stuff here which is clearly good for the game and has shaped the modern game. Being the person that he was, politician, running companies, media empires, was this a lot about him being front and centre and this he wanted to be seen to be the person... And make lots of money. For his own ends and make lots of money. Yes. Being a bit cynical about the whole thing, it's obviously 50, 60 years after Jimmy Hill and maybe it was very different, the world is very different. Is, was he slightly, again, in terms of achieving all this, was a lot of it to do with him achieving it or was it f- genuinely for the good of the game? No, not I mean, not a lot of it. I'd say literally all of it. Yes. It was all about building the Berlusconi brand. Yes. But again, that's kind of where football's gone. Good good things have and, come out of that. And Yeah, there were, there were benefits to that. I mean, I know that everyone kind of misses the, the idea of what the European Cup used to be but at the same time if you had a year where if we went back to it and you saw the, the superpowers play each other in the first two or three rounds and you ended up with a final between I guess what would the modern equivalent be like Apoel Nicosia and Maribor Anderlecht then people would be like well this is clearly rubbish this is not what we want and I think that the, the, what the Champions League has become I think most people now for all that we've discussed flaws on it before you know, we've, I'm sure we've done episodes on the problems with the Champions League several I think perhaps the general idea of having the best teams in Europe together in that competition every year that is something that fans like and there is a reason the Champions League is such a phenomenon and Berlusconi saw that I would say that's a benefit but then it's I'd forcing say it's the cream to the surface exactly yes. the, it, it, but yeah, it's also you know the way yeah, you know what yeah. I mean by that it's also I mean there's, there's a there's a flip side to that, I guess, which is that, which is that the cream has less far. It's harder for the cream to fall. There's a safety yes, net there, yeah, which is yeah. a problem. But I think that is broadly a good thing that came out because of Berlusconi's desire to make money and his 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 identification of of a, a sort of expanded and altered European competition as a way to make money. Uh, I think in terms of him seeing what football could be in terms of media content, again, you probably have to say broadly that's a good thing mm-hmm. because. The experience it's not not every single um, consequence of it has been good, but broadly it's Im- it's improved the game. The game is better now than it was forty years ago, um, and maybe the less said about his politics, the better. Is he the mo- most calculated, perhaps, of the people we've discussed, though, in terms of their ability to see the value of the game? He's his is more exploitative than perhaps the others who were trying to put something back in or to, you know, Jimmy Hill's case, obviously, to better the lives of, of the players who were bringing people through the turnstiles to watch them. Berlusconi was seeing a product and thinking, well, how can I manipulate this to my own ends? And, and that's why we now have this bloated version of, of the Champions League, which at times gives us great entertainment, but is a little bit unwieldy, really, that would there's perhaps a happy medium to be struck in terms of the best way to find out the the champion of Europe than, than it, the, the current model because it's such a exhausting campaign, isn't it? Mm. That it's very as, as we discussed quite recently, it's very difficult to to, to challenge both domestically and and in Europe. So not always the best team in Europe is crowned the the European European champion. How easy was it for Berlusconi to manipulate or to 
certainly motivate those that ran European football that his vision was the one they should follow. I think there was there was an appetite for change anyway, and I think that within UEFA there were there were people who understood that perhaps there was a way to make more money out of the competition. But also, you'd like to think that people like Lennart Johansson were thinking of this is a better competition. And in the in the early years of the Champions League, it kind of made sense because you got the group stages, which I think in ninety two ninety three were were just eight. There were eight teams in the groups, and then I think maybe went straight to the semis, then the final, and that kind of worked because you t- it still was a knockout competition. Then you had a group stage, which meant you, you had that that run of games between big teams. Although I seem to remember Casino Salzburg did really well, which I'm <laughs> guessing was not the way it was envisioned. And that lasted, I think, almost in, uh, my dates will be wrong, but until sort of '96 ish, which was when they brought in this idea that there would be a big group stage initially. Then obviously, remember the second group stage? Oh, yeah, God. a couple. Of, which only lasted a couple of years, I think. Didn't which it? was incredibly lucrative because it meant you got games that really mattered between the really big teams. But it was, I think, even UEFA understood that it was even the clubs, yeah, even the elite clubs recognised that that was too much. Yeah, that was, was one of the extraordinary. It, big clubs like Manchester United were driving the switch back to going straight to the round of sixteen rather yeah. than having a, a second group. Stage so it wasn't yeah. necessarily for him finding who is the best team in Europe. It's the money that could be made yeah. from the competition, the big clubs playing each other at later stages. Well, that was what what the Napoli Real Madrid game I think taught him that. that so having games like that. That that was his reason for saying we don't want this happening now. We have to have this. So if we hadn't had those yeah. draws, Napoli playing Real Madrid, the argument is well, we had once you have it and you see you have two giants playing each other in the. It, it, that's what we don't want. So this is again the reason why I'm thinking of doing it this way. But it's not necessarily for the good of finding out who is the best team. No, in Europe. this is not designed for that. Although it's designed to make money. I su- although does it help way? anyway? Well, I was going to say yeah. that I, I suspect that... Do we get to the best team in Europe with the model that we have? I would say we get to the best team in Europe no less frequently than we did okay. with the old model. Yeah. Because knockout football is inherently random, so you can make an argument that removing the influence of the, of the straight knockout is actually more helpful. It's it's gone too far now so that you know the, the really big teams can, can sail through the group stages. There will come a point where they start putting B teams out in the group stage because there's no reason risking your first team players. In fact, there'll come a point where they're playing B teams constantly because none of it matters to them. But anyway, that's a different debate. <laughs> the, um, that's the uh, coming up in the nihilism podcast. <laughs> but the that again, and we said this with 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 Crickmire and we said this with Jimmy Hill that there and and with Wenger that there are their their influence has not been uniformly positive. And Berlusconi obviously hasn't been uniformly posit- positive, but it is enormous the the influence of Silvio Bil- Silvio Berlusconi, Berlusconi on the game, not just in Italy, but elsewhere too. Because without that revamp of the Champions League I don't know and with certainly without Serie A being such a dominant force I don't know whether the Premier League would have had the motivation to, to get together and break away from the FA Is there in recent memory any example of a revamp or an expansion that isn't primarily for financial reasons No everything in, in Berlusconi's defence In yeah. well you'll know about other sports a bit more than I do but in terms of football even the League Cup harder just folly to, to bring another thread to a close was about money. It was about making money out of the fact that floodlight most most teams now had floodlights. The European Cup initially was I guess there was a sporting motivation, but I'm sure the clubs were partly thinking we can sell tickets for these games. You know Well this is back to Walter back Crickmar. To, yeah. back there, to Crickmar was, yeah. there must have been a pragmatic reason for it, they're not, not just gonna, a sense that you wanted to represent. Yeah. They're not gonna do it at a loss. The difference with Berlusconi as I say is that he was there was no bones about it. He was not hiding his motivations particularly. He wanted he wanted AC Milan to be the best team in the world because that helped his brand and it helped drive satellite sales and, and subscriptions to his TV channels. He wanted his TV station to be the biggest 
in hindsight, does he wanted to accrue political capital and be able to kind of move move those two things into into the political political sphere? Although we don't know, to be fair, I don't know if that came slightly later that his ambitions changed, and he wanted the Champions League because he thought this was a way of of driving up revenues for the clubs. I suspect he will have told himself that it was good for football. I think that all of these things happen and the people convince themselves that what they're doing is good for everybody. But really, what's important is it's good for him. See about his influence on a European scale. How did he, did he influence things domestically in Italy? Or was his vision yeah, I beyond, think he, I think he, always beyond Italy? I'm, I think that he influenced things in terms of driving up TV revenues in Italy initially. Mm-hmm. And also the... the the sort of conspicuous consumption of, the, of the, what they call the Sette Sorelle, the, th- the seven big Italian teams in the just the late, very late 80s, early 90s, that was driven by an, a need to keep up with AC Milan because they were spending money on, on not just Van Basten and Rijkaard and Hullet, but on Boban and Savicevic and all these wonderful players. Uh, that, that drove Inter and Juve and, and Lazio and Roma and Parma and Fiorentina to, to have to spend more money as well. Yeah. Um, so I guess from that point of view, he did have a huge influence on, on Serie A. Mm. And we shouldn't forget that he did create one of the... Or he he didn't create, but he bankrolled um, not only the creation of one of the greatest teams of the of the second half of the 20th century, the team that before Real Madrid came along were the last to retain the European Cup, but he also was kind of responsible for for two kind of left-field managerial appointments that massively influenced football. First of all, Saki, who was a school teacher I think who, who wasn't who was not qualified to be a coach who he gave AC Milan to and Saki produced this extraordinary team and is the sort of coach who is now cited as an inspiration by people like Guardiola like well pretty much everybody everyone looks to Saki that entire Italian school of coaches would swear fealty to Saki and then when Saki left for the Italy, Italy national team Berlusconi gave the job to a TV pundit who was Fabio Capello who had been an international but he wasn't he wasn't kind of, he wasn't the, the manager of an up-and-coming, exciting Fiorentina team or anything. He was just Fabio Capello. He gave him the job, and Capello then went and built on what Sacchi had done. They won the European Cup again in '94, beating the the dream team of Barcelona four 0 with you know Desai and and all and and that team, Daniele Massaro, all those players, as well as obviously Baresi. Yeah, that's the goal, Savicevic, amazing goal yeah. in that final. Yeah, yeah. In a, in, a, in in fact, if you watch that final, it was in Athens. It was in Panathinaikos' stadium. It weirdly empty. And really? if you think about what the Champions League has become, that was Milan against Barcelona, the two and Barcelona who had this incredible team, and the stadium is is not only not full, it is nowhere near full in Athens. Um, but yeah, so his influence in terms of what Serie A became is huge, but also in kind of in his the Berlusconi influence on football as a, as a pure sport, not as time decayed media content, is vast as well because he. He gave Saki a chance, and, and it's a chance that Saki might not have yeah, had yeah. if it wasn't for Berlusconi. Yeah. Before Berlusconi in, in Milan, you know, AC Milan weren't even the the biggest club in the city. Yeah. People, you know, people now see when they think of football in Milan, AC Milan is very often the team they first think of. But the classic football match of of, of Italy, the Derby d'Italia, is Juventus versus Inter. Oh. That's historically the the rivalry. So he 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 pulled them up. To, to the point where, effectively, I suppose you, you look at Manchester now in terms of United and City, but you know, f- up until that point, Milan was really the only two-club city, wasn't it, in European football, where you could argue that they were both pretty much of a, 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 at an equal level. I think, in, well, in fact, I mean, I guess until Madrid in 2013, when yeah. Atleti won the title, 
and that uh, from that point on, Madrid became the only became the the capital of European football, even more so than Manchester on the grounds that that Atleti and and Real have yeah. both won major European tournaments. City City obviously have won the Cup Winners' Cup, but City would not claim until recently to have been a force even on the scale of Atletico Madrid. But until then, from, from I guess from the sixties. Milan is is the epicenter of European football in the sense, as you say, that it has two genuine giants, two teams who are European aristocracy. No other city has that, and until Atleti came along as a as a sort of a genuine force rather than an occasional kind of winner of things, then I don't think Madrid did either. So yeah, Milan, and that's partly does a Berlusconi that again. I think that's really again someone with wealth and power who you tend to think I'll tell you how to do this to those appointments that you've talked about to make them in the first place and then to allow them to do their jobs you see it a lot with say Chilino at Leeds or Abramovich at Chelsea you know how involved wealthy owners can get in thinking I can drive how the team should be playing and I should be involved in who we sign and don't sign clearly he was able to make a choice and step back and well, let these guys not really oh so one of the great the great skills of certainly Ancelotti who obviously would go on to be um, a European Cup winner with, with AC Milan was in dealing with the fact that Berlusconi would come and tell him who he wanted in the ah, team. So these guys must have been very strong characters as well, yeah, as given th- an opportunity th- to th- tell him, I'm, I'm, this is what I want to do. I think Capello Unless and... Unless he was right and they agreed. Yeah, with him. Well, that's <laughs> it. And I, I wonder whether, to an extent, Capello and Saki, I'm sure, had to deal with Berlusconi's opinions as well. Yeah. And if you go to the, the museum at Milan, his helicopter that was the helicopter he used when he took, descended on the club after he bought it in the 80s, Milan was on the verge of bankruptcy. And Berlusconi's came by helicopter. There is a model of, of the helicopter in Milan's museum. Mm. But he would regularly appear by chopper at the training round. And the, certainly with, with Ancelotti, and I'm sure with Capello Cap- and Sacchi, he would be saying, well, I think such and such would play here and such and such would play there. And he would always, you know, he'd, he'd stand and have coffee with the players. And I'm sure he'd, he'd give feedback that was <laughs> only slightly welcome to players who were playing well or badly or whatever. I think the skill that Sacchi and Capello probably had was in managing his expectations, mm-hmm. managing upwards as well as downwards. But also, it could well, to be honest, it, it, they had so many good players yeah. that I'm sure it didn't really matter. If, if he said, I want Dejan Savicevic to play, I'm sure Fabio Trapello wasn't, oh, no, he's useless. It's Dejan Savicevic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what yeah, a good yeah, idea. Yeah, <laughs> I want Dejan Savicevic to, to play too. He's one of the yeah, best yeah. players in the world. Does, does Berlusconi's expansionist ideology live on <laughs> to this day immediately in that next season's Champions League will have those protected places for the top four in each of the top three leagues um, to enable from the club's point of view, their likelihood of qualifying, but also the prospect of having good clubs earlier and therefore fewer, uh, and therefore more that remain into the into the knockout stages. So it's kind of the protectionism. Yeah, that's that's classic. That's Berlusconi's this, playbook. This yeah. is this is Berlusconi writ large. The, the the UEFA thing with the Champions League is is pure Berlusconiism, without a shadow of a doubt. It's let's get more of the big teams in, let's protect them. This, the, the switching around the seeding a couple of years ago has made a bit of a difference, but it's it's like let's get what people want to see are the big teams playing each other from the big TV markets. That not the big countries, not the big rich tr- traditional football countries. The big traditional football countries are Hungary and Austria and Scotland. They're not they're not being invited to the party. The it's the big TV pools. That's what they want access and to. And that works domestically as well. That yeah. works domestically in terms of selling your rights for your domestic league. Uh, domestically, but also globally. Mm. So th- this is this is not an argument we're saying that is completely left field, but it is a trend that was started by Berlusconi and and is is almost in the image of his original I don't, idea. I, I don't even know if it was started by him. I just think he he spotted it, ran with it, and took it to its natural Monetized conclusion, and then worked out how to monetize it, and then later politicize it. And all of this, 
is yeah, kind of a natural extension of where Berlusconi of the journey that Berlusconi and to be honest, Jimmy Hill set everybody out on that. It's I think what what's interesting about quite a lot of these examples that we've chosen is that, or in fact, I think that what's quite interesting is that so, so often things change because of either tragedy, and the Munich air disaster is obviously one example of that as a, of a tragedy that had a huge huge influence on football. The other one, of course, is Hillsborough, because no history of the Premier League is complete without without mention of the fact that the whole thing is basically built on on the death of the ninety six at Hillsborough. And you can make an argument that Heysel had a significant impact on, on kind of what European football would become in terms of the facilities and making sure that didn't happen again. Um, and equally the Bradford Bradford Fire, the deaths in Glasgow, all that, those disasters have had a ma- major impact on what football's become. The the other thing that's really telling is that it's so often history is dis- defined by by individuals with an idea and the conviction to carry that idea yeah. through. And that's, and that's why we say about them yeah. that they they have to have an arrogance to be able to have that conviction yeah. to to carry it through. And all of the examples we've given, um, probably bar Walter Crickmark, because we don't necessarily know him in terms of but his he, personality. But, but I would imagine you would have had to have enough conviction to be able yeah. to push it through. He must have had a lot of self assurance to, to convince the football league I, yeah. that they were going to do it. He he was more the the I you know he wasn't it was an ideology about what Manchester United was at that time and and his his involvement in that a different angle a uh, story that. You know, I suppose we know the United story and the Busby story a little bit, don't we? But there are always other, even with the example of Berlusconi. You mentioned the person, the Alan, who uh, who, who was Alan Finn? Was it the guy who? Oh, Alex Finn. Yeah, Alex yeah. Finn, who he who he asked to to draw up a proposal. So even if you've got somebody as the driving force behind an idea, you need others to be on board with yeah. it to, to, to see that vision through, don't you? The difference is that working from a blank sheet or working from a position of obvious vacuum because you're the first to have the idea is a very different position to being somebody who's trying to expand upon something that is yeah. already very big. So and, yeah. the next visionary is going to have a much, much tougher job. And I would imagine they'll be they'll be perhaps prompted by wildly financial means and they'll, they'll not necessarily care about doing a good job they'll care about getting the most money well the next visionary is have I, not, have I not told you my Ryder Cup football idea yeah, yes you have mentioned yeah. the Ryder that's, Cup that's the next hosted visionary hosted by Dennis Quaid Ho- hosted <laughs> by exclusively by Dennis Quaid so apparently Quaid. Dennis Quaid can do that as well the, um, yeah I mean that's the next the next the, the, there is there is a, a reckoning coming in terms of, of how because there's now so much money that it's e- in in a sense, I think it's easier to look at it and think, well, if we, if we do this and this and this, actually, we can make a, a load of money. Does you know that it will? You know that if you eventually, if you stick with something long enough and you do it well enough, then people will watch and you can charge for it. Does, I'm guessing that when the Champions League was was revamped, nobody was thinking this is going to be a good idea. But looking back, you can now see that that is a is a hugely influential time of fo- that fo- uh, when football really changed with the change in the back pass rule, with yeah, the Taylor Report being instituted with improvements in grounds across Europe, all-seater stadium coming in, and then the Champions League and the Premier League. You then get this this massive change of football in the early 1990s. Now it will be harder to find the gap in the market, but I guess that the bravery of Berlusconi, for all that he is an unsavoury character in so many, so many ways, his bravery was in saying, there is an opportunity here to do something, let's do it. My other suggestion was going to be, but I don't think Hugh took me seriously, my other suggestion was going to be Bruce McMillan. I think there's another. I, I I think there's mileage in this concept. The men who change football. Let's not. Yeah. Let's not. Let's not blow them let's now. Keep, blow, keep blow your, your Bruce McMillan in your back pocket. I will. Bruce McMillan, the character played by Dennis Quaid yes. in a 1988 movie called 
Bruce McMillan. Uh, we do, and, and Rory is responsible for a lot of these, um, have a lot of other suggestions that we decided to not choose and not nominate over the last four weeks. Um, so it may well be that we've got enough. Are we going to ask people to uh, maybe nominate who they think? Yeah, yes, by all means. And we add, add to the list. And next time Rory's going away for a month, we'll, <laughs> we'll do that. Mm. Uh, so thank you very much indeed if you are already doing that or you are thinking of doing that. So there Chip we go. Just added some programme furniture there, by the way. Programme furniture. furniture. He made a note about furniture. it. No, no, I made a note about pretty much everything else, but not programme furniture. <laughs> so there we go. Uh, Silvio Berlusconi, Jimmy Hill, Walter Crickmar and Arsene Wenger. Those are the people that we've nominated as being pivotal in shaping modern football. Excellent, Rory. There well are done, Rory. There are others, good. of course, um, as we've mentioned. Most of those others will be more obvious, perhaps, but probably only mine was obvious enough to mean that I could get away with Googling stuff and using it as my own, which probably you would have noticed mm. uh, last week. Before we go, time for two things. In a moment, a soccer story. <gasps> Notes have been made. You have a choice. You have a choice of soccer story. But first, yes, a final chance to play. I can't believe that happened. Yes, each week during the World Cup, we've been commenting upon the events of the day that precedes the pod's release, even though that is impossible without the help of Sam Beckett, Ziggy, and a whole lot of quantum leaping. Yeah. Sam Beckett played by Scott Bakula, who got the job because Dennis Quaid was busy. Exactly. But bearing in mind um, how accurate we've been so far, let's continue on for one last time. And I can't believe that happened at the second semi-final, likely to be between Argentina or maybe Spain and Germany. I can't believe that happened... Second semi-final, what a game. I can't believe that happened. Hold on, who are you saying in the semi-final? Argentina or Spain and Germany. In the semi-final? In the semi-final. That was, so what was the other semi-final? Brazil and France. Have you seen the I thought got to the other. I don't the care. Other. Go for England. If Belgium win the group with England, I'm suggesting they get knocked out by Brazil. France beat Uruguay in the second round, so yeah. f- uh, in the quarterfinal. So France and Brazil meet in one semi-final. Spain and Argentina are going to meet if they both win their groups in the quarterfinals. So I've gone for Argentina because I think Argentina are going to win the World Cup. It's going to be a messy, glorifying Do you? moment. And Germany beating England in the other quarterfinals. So I've got Argentina against Germany in the semi-final. Actually, even more fun than this, should be, should be, we should really say who... We, we think we'll win the World Cup. We'll do that. We? To, um, I can't believe that <laughs> coming up on Sunday following this podcast that Egypt win the World Cup. It won't be Egypt, although I think Mo Salah's a decent shout for top scorer. It's what I call the Shevchenko mistake. I once put money on Andrei Shevchenko being top scorer at a World Cup because mm. Ukraine had a what looked an absolute gimme group. So I thought he'll he'll score five during the group stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll get at least you know one one maybe two in the knockout stages. Six seven goals that'll be enough. I think he scored once. That's the Shevchenko mistake. I yeah. prefer to focus exclusively on the Selenko paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is score five in score one five game. Score five in one game. And that's all you need <laughs> to do. That's what I thought Shevchenko would do against Saudi Arabia, who yeah, were in their yeah. group that year. So uh, yesterday's big semi-final. Uh, I think um, it's amazing that Andres Iniesta was sent off for two-footing Lionel Messi, if that's one of the games that can happen. In the face. In the face, <laughs> in his last ever international appearance. Who would have thought he had such brutality inside him? FIFA have realised their mistake by not selecting an English official to take to the World Cup and they've ended up having to get someone from Tunisia to oversee the semi-finals because England got knocked out so early that it would have been useful to have Michael Oliver around. Argentina-Spain, is that a possibility? No. It's not a possibility. They will meet. Doesn't matter to what I'm going to say. In the quarterfinals. The Argentina, led by Leo Messi, gegenpressed Germany into submission. And win 1-0. Thank you very much for all of your efforts in the never-to-be-repeated but very, very much supported game of... I can't believe that happened. I genuinely can't believe that that game happened. Who believe that? I can't. Who do you think's winning it? 
winning the World Cup. Which World Cup? This World Cup. <laughs> this World Cup. The, 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 the soccer Cup, world. The soccer World Cup. Billy Busters by just saying somebody. I think Senegal. Senegal. Okay. I like. I like Senegal. Who do you think, Rory? Germany. Germany and Stephen. Yeah, I think you might be on something with Argentina. Argentina. Uh, it is time before we leave for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a sock story. We've been Ooh. waiting four weeks for this. This is when Andy tells the tale from his playing days with all that up behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. You said we had a choice. Yeah, do you want a story about flaxen-haired winger Karol Poborski or <laughs> on the six other foot four becoming more and more French partridge. visionary Arsene Wenger? Oh, was that Arsene Wenger, the one that you told at the very beginning, not the soccer story? Uh... <laughs> Which one at the very beginning? The one about, about Tottenham. About Tottenham. Yeah, but that wasn't on air. Yeah, no, it was. No, it was. We've did already you, heard that. Did you black out? Jim? Oh, I'll do the Poborski one, shall I? <laughs> yeah, that's how we choose. Yeah. Something different oh, right, to what you were talking about at the beginning would be useful. So, 21st of August, 1996. Mm. Pretty much the start of the season. Roll with it, it's number one in the chart. <laughs> it probably is, and rightly so. <laughs> Carol Poborski has come away from the European Championships, the glory of the European Championships of the Czech Republic, beaten in the final. Hinchcliffe has had a glorious two-week holiday in Lanzarote. <laughs> they are pitched mano e mano on the turf at Old Trafford. Because that's how they speak in Czech. Yeah, yeah they do. And the United fans clearly are thinking Karol Poborski against uh, a suntan Hinchcliffe. This is going to be hilarious because, of course, Christian Zieger in the Euro Championship fight. couldn't cope with couldn't Poborski because he was so good. Do you remember that kind of scoopy Pat Nevin yeah. goal he scored? Against, against Portugal. Wasn't Portugal. that at Hillsborough? That was at Hillsborough. Yes. And he was, he was, he was, was he not the star of the show, would you say? No, or the was star he, of the show was Patrick Berger. Patrick Berger. Who would have been, he'd have been in the top three or top five, he would was, we say, Carol Poborski? He was the, the Czech's second best player. So I'm, so I'm up second against, best haircut as well. So I'm up against one of European footballs. Was Nedved in that team actually? Yeah, Possibly. Team, yeah. Hottest properties. United had just signed him. Clearly, they knew the value. But then quickly realised after 45 minutes at Old Trafford, what a duck egg they'd signed here. (laughs) But it wasn't... The thing was, it wasn't how poor Poborski was. It was how good I was. Now, I don't... You know me. I don't blow my own trumpet. Let's not make it about you. that trumpet, Steve. Uh, (laughs) Carol Poborski... You'd like like to let us know you've got one. (laughs) Yeah. Not just that Poborski had absolutely no attacking effect on the game, but I managed to put in a couple of crosses from one of which Duncan Ferguson scored. So we were... 2-0 2-0 up at Old Trafford. Poborski is unceremoniously taken off at half-time because he simply cannot match the mental and physical strength of Hinchcliffe. So one of the stars, the stars of European football is basically just cast aside by Alex Ferguson. Clearly, you don't know what you're doing. Again. He's too good for you, Carol, with a K. You have to come off. Took him off. I can't remember who they sent on, but the game finished 2-2, and I think it was a blame for the two goals. <laughs> but anyway, the story is about me dominating, but in a footballing way, one of the stars of European football. Probably the only time I did that in my career. And then a few days later, you were playing for England for the first time. That's very true. So it's probably Maybe. that first-half performance against Poborski that got you the call-up. Glenn Hoggle is probably watching that match <laughs> yeah. and thinking... But left at half-time. I need. <laughs> Sadly, thought, I've got one here, Were and then didn't a... see the second 45 minutes and then realised what a, an idiot he'd brought into the squad. Was it 96? Was that the Beckham year? Was that the year Beckham started coming through? I think Beckham came on yeah, in he that done. game. Because it would have been... A, to play at yeah, right wing and absolutely nailed their debut in the same game. But that would have been... No, no, no. The start of 96 is not... Is that not... 96, you'll win nothing with kids, isn't it? Uh, 95. Was that? No. Five, that was because they won the double yeah. in 96. Yeah. Okay. Mm. 
Still, but Chinch, anyway, Chinch, anyway. and but his amazing you, performance. Can you imagine? I don't know what. It'd be nice to pick Carol's brains, wouldn't it? Does he remember that day? There yeah, can't be many matches where he, he was been made, to look, made to look like a, just a long-haired hippie on the wing. I would have taken off. Pretty much every game that Carol Horsley <laughs> played, wasn't it? Uh, thank you very much indeed, Andrew Hinchcliffe. I hope that was worth the wait for everybody who had uh, it sat by was. their beds it for probably the last month was. or so. The listeners love the braggy chinch soccer <laughs> Apart stories. from the Paborski family who will be weeping <laughs> into their Czech-based food. Thank you uh, for everything that you have sent to us in our uh, kind of absence over the last month or so. Do continue to get in touch at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We will bring you some of the best next week on our series of those who helped to shape modern football. But for now, please do subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Rory and Andy and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon. After we have hightailed it to a vegetarian restaurant in the sunshine. Oh, this is, this is going to be good, this, isn't it? It's, it's going to be, be good. good. We're going to have to very much educate and initiate Stephen into the ways of vegetarian food mm. that is still actually appealing to him. He's very what much a meat and two veg guy and less of the two veg. What happens if we get the quinoa couscous and we form it into the shape of a pork chop? That I think he will but that fall is for that. Simon Rimmer's genius is yeah. the fact that he convinces you that it is meat-like. He has cheese sausages. He has vegetarian black pudding. He does have Lancashire cheese sausages, Lancashire cheese sausages. Stephen. Oh, they're delicious. He has pies that look like they're going to be meat, but actually they're filled filled full of squash. Is Rimsy actually there cooking it himself? Today? Rimsy, baby. Rimsy, right. baby. He probably, if he knows I'm in. I've he knows. seen him at the local Tesco, so I know he's about yeah. sometimes. If he knows the Carol Dominator's in, he'll so definitely So is everybody happy for us to clear up this mess after we've had lunch and come back later on? Because yeah. I don't want to do it now. Let's do it. Yeah. Some, somebody get me a celery dip. Wow.